Everybody. Welcome to episode four of Study with Steph. In case you don't know where you are, what you're doing, um, I am on a mission to get my CTS. So I began this podcast to help myself as I start studying and to hopefully help all of you out there who are doing something similar to what I am doing. Today we are talking about audio, and I have invited the audio man himself, Chuck Espinoza, on with me to talk a little bit about this chapter because help. So, <laughs> Chuck, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Glad I could be here. So I talked to you a little bit about this, but I am coming from a little bit of experience with audio just because I studied radio uh, in undergrad and graduate school, and I, I would go out into the field and like I would use microphones and loudspeakers and these things. So I kind of understand what they do and why they're important. But like when we talk about the science and the physics and the inner workings of why they work. That was when I was like, oh, maybe I really don't know audio as well as I thought I did. <laughs> so I really appreciate you being here. So I guess it might be easiest to start with like the simplest way to talk about sound, which is in sound waves. Right, so sound waves, uh, sound is made from energy. Something has to produce some type of energy and the way that energy transfers, like from my mouth hole to your ear hole, is I vibrate air, the molecules in the air. When my vocal cords move or when any sound is, is made, uh, there's air molecules all around us. <clears throat> and the sound is made and it upsets those air molecules. And one molecule uh, goes forward and it bumps another molecule, so to speak, and it, and it kind of makes this chain reaction. And it's... Uh, you know, when the molecules come together, it's called compression. When one molecule gets closer to the other, and then refraction when it when it uh, separates, and and you know these, it's like domino effect, right? So, right. that being said, uh, sound and all audio and all types of sound, <clears throat> it's an energy. It's got to be created with some type of energy. Uh, we have to have some type of uh, impulse of energy to move that air. And once you really wrap your head around uh, sound being a physical thing, not, not just something that, you know, it literally floats in the air, but it moves the air around, you can start seeing how some of the things to control this sound uh, are a little bit different, like sound absorbers or if you, you know, why do we have reflections off hard surfaces, off specular surfaces? Why does it sound funny when I'm talking in front of a mirror? It ha I have more high end than when I'm talking in front of drywall. Um, so once you get grasp the whole concept of this sound is energy, uh, then we can start talking about different things like frequencies and wavelength. Um, but the, the whole, the basis of any, everything is sound is a form of energy that moves molecules around the air and are our eardrums, our microphones, our ear holes are just like microphones. They pick up that sound and, you know, it vibrates, that air vibrates our eardrums at different frequencies and amplitudes, and it changes it into an electrical impulse that our brain can understand, or the microphone will change it into an electrical impulse, the actual voltage that we get and can reproduce and amplify and play with and, and send across the country. So when we're looking at like a, a sound wave, like a sine wave, 
we measure it in terms of wavelength and frequency and amplitude. Yes. So wavelength is, if I'm understanding, from point A over here to point B, like how long it is, this one wave. Yeah, that's kind of a way of thinking about it. Uh, the, the sine wave is going to cycle. Um, okay. So when I put some energy in the air, it's going to hit this molecule. This molecule is going to hit this molecule, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you think about that in terms of what it would look like linearly from the side, the sine wave would get some power and go up to its uh, 90 degree position, its, its first hump in that 90 degree position, and then it would go back. So the molecule would go forward and then back to where it was originally at. So up and then back down to its zero position, but that would be 180 because now it's not going up, it's going down. Mm -hmm. So up to 90, back to 180, and then the molecule would actually come back. So you have the compression, I'm pushing it away mm -hmm. and the rarefraction back from the other molecule. So it would go up, come back, come back towards me, and then back to its zero position where it would start going back up again. So that's how the sine wave would vibrate and that's how it would look linearly or if you're looking at it uh, in front, it would go from here. It starts here. Okay. It, forward, back, back, forward. Forward, back, back, forward. Or up, down, down, up. Okay. So that's how the sine wave would function. Now that, that sine wave, that molecule, um, has a, a physical uh, a distance that it's going to move per frequency. Um, if I was to time sound in a given space, how long it takes sound to move, it's about 1130 feet per second. Okay. So that would tell me that a uh, 1130 hertz, 1130 um, vibrations per second, that would, each of those vibrations is going to be about a foot long. Okay. 1,130 feet per second. So a 1,130 Hertz sine wave, the, the distance it's going to go is about a foot, uh, roughly speaking. Um, so that's how we would talk about frequency is how many times per second does this sine wave happen? It's okay. literally frequency. How many, how, how frequent does this sine wave happen? So when we talk about bass tones or uh, like very low frequencies, like 60 Hertz rumble in my, you know, my car stereo, those frequencies, you can actually watch the loudspeaker vibrate 60 times a second to make that 60 Hertz wave. And it's a very big wave. The, the, the 60 hertz wave for it to actually cycle is huge. Yeah. If you think about a wave uh, that's 1,130 hertz uh, is a foot, well, if I halved the frequency, if I cut that frequency in half, I went down an octave. An octave is a doubling or halving of the frequency. So if I move down an octave to 500 and what is it, 565, mm -hmm. that that sound wave at 565 is one octave below, but it's twice the size of that physical, of that one foot sound wave. It's physically twice the size. So the molecule is going to go forward and back 
uh, a lot longer distance. And if, you know, if we, if 565, we go down another octave to two, what would it be, 282.5. Uh, now that is four feet long and we can keep going, you know, dividing those octaves and going down and figuring out what that physical wavelength is. Uh, uh, if I got my calculator here, let me grab my calculator. Okay. I'm going to go 1,130 feet per second. 1,130 hertz is a one foot wave. Divide that by two. 565 is a two foot wave. Divide that by two. 282.5 would be a four foot wave. Divide that by two. 141.25 hertz would be an eight foot wave. Okay. Divide by two. And a 70.625, 70 hertz, 70.6 hertz would be about a 16 foot wave. It would take that wave 16 feet to actually cycle in the air. Uh, okay. Got you. Cool. So next, um, you talked about octaves a little bit, and I, I want to kind of jump into those a little more because I do understand that like we hear sounds kind of based on octaves and octaves. I know that it's like, you know, there are eight notes in each octave and, you know, like if you're looking at a piano, it's like A to A or B to B. Like I know that. Um, but when it comes to like putting in the harmonics and understanding how we hear sound on a logarithmic scale instead of a linear scale, that's where I'm getting a little confused. Okay, so we have two different things going on. Number one is going to be that, say that low C, the white key, right? Yeah. So an of that, the same, the same kind of looking key that has the black key next to it, and and you know below it the B is the white key. If we hit those two, Bing, we are playing an octave. Yes. Well, when I hit that low octave, that fundamental note is going to generate within its own sine wave. It's going to generate other sounds. There are going to be more. Uh, frequencies created by that fundamental. So we have our fundamental octave at the bottom. The first frequency it creates is going to be a octave above it, just from generating that note. Uh, when it starts moving around, we are going to hear uh, an octave above it. So that's the first harmonic it's going to generate. So then the next harmonic it's going to generate is a fifth above that. So if it was a C, it would be generating a G, an octave and a fifth above it. Um, then it's going to generate another octave, so the third octave, and then it's going to generate a third, a fifth, so C, E, and G, like a chord, and then another octave above that, and then after that, it's going to start generating some weird harmonics. In the music spectrum, it would be uh, the, the fundamental or the root fifth harmonic, and then that would be considered one. We're going to generate the second note, which is a step away, a flattish third note. So it's a little flat. It's not quite a perfect third, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of a sharp fourth, the fifth, the sixth, a seventh, but just a not quite a perfect seventh. And then the, uh, the final octave up top. So we have this five octave range, fundamental, first octave, fifth, second octave, third, fifth, fourth octave, two, three, four, five, six, seven, fifth octave and that is a full overtone so when i generate a note uh, uh if i hit that low c bing it's not going to come out just one perfect sine wave it's going to come out with all these 
overtones that that play into it. Now, it's really, unless you're really trained or you listen for them, you really don't hear all, all of these things generated. But it would be, um, you know, every now and then, if you could sit down on a piano and guitar and start playing these octaves and you can kind of start hearing these tones generate. But the energy that that fundamental is generating to generate those, those tones are, are not, uh, what's struck. It's usually just the fundamental. Right. Uh, that's a lot of very low energy. So you really have to listen hard, be in a very quiet environment. So that's the first thing uh, we talk about. So that is, that is frequency. When we talk about decibel, that has to do more of uh, with amplitude, how loud this is, how much power this thing has. Okay. Uh, and a, a decibel by itself doesn't mean anything. When I say 25 dB, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, a decibel right. is a comparison between two numbers. So I would have to qualify that decibel. So I would say 25 dB SPL. So now if I say 25 or 35 dB SPL, I'm qualifying that as a comparison to zero dB SPL. Like you can't hear anything, 0. 0.00002 pascals of pressure where there's no sound. And then uh logarithmically i would work my way up so let's talk about linear and logarithmic linear okay. if one and this is one i have two right yes so one the next step is two if i add another one it would be three it would be three individual ones linearly if i have one and i went up and added a zero now i would have ten logarithmically then if I add another zero, I would have a hundred. So if I'm talking about steps in, in a bell system, which is what our uh, logarithms are based off of, first is one, then 10, and then 100, and then a thousand. Uh, so you can see if I get up, if I say something like it's an 85 dB difference, that's massive compared to like a 15 dB difference. It's not just 70 of the same thing it's going up like this into a, a huge difference. So the difference between 3 dB and 30 dB is it's not like I'm just adding 27 of the same thing of three. I'm actually going logarithmically, exponentially out. Oh. So linearly, uh, when we listen to music, like on our volumes, on our radios and iPads and things like that, and we actually turn a volume knob off up, it goes from one to two. Uh, one to two is linear for our thinking, but it's actually going up logarithmically. It's increasing in multiples because if I moved it up one dB, if I went from one to two dB, I wouldn't notice a change at all. If I went up from uh, one to three dB, I might barely notice a change. If you can imagine a volume knob that went from like zero to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 100,000, you know, we'd have, it, it would just be like, hey, can you turn that up to 100,000? Okay. So when we talk about decibels, we're talking about comparing uh, one thing to another. And in the case of, of loudness, we're talking about pressure. Um, 94 dB SPL is one pascal. Zero dB SPL is 0 0.0002 pascals. So now I have from literally 0 0.00002 to 94 
uh, or zero, 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 two to one to go from zero to 94. I have all these little cuts in between all these little, you know, that's a lot of numbers in there to be able to stop. So uh, instead of labeling things in the, the Pascal, the pressure, uh, the, the standard unit of the Pascal, we start as a comparison, just using the DB for SPL. And we do this with electronics. We compare voltages um, with DB. We compare outputs of power. Uh, like if I have a 10 watt amplifier and I want an amplifier that's twice as loud, I would do um, 10 log uh, 10. Uh, I would do a 10 log calculation. So my calculation, my amplifier, let me do this real quick. Okay. If I'm doing a, I have an amplifier that's putting out, um, say, 70 dB SPL. Okay. I'm going to get an amplifier twice as big. So I'm going 10 log uh, 20, which is my variable, twice as large, divided by 10, which is my um, reference, my 10 watt amplifier. What happens if I get a 20 watt amplifier? That's a 3 dB increase. So if I'm listening to music at 70 dB at a 10 watt amplifier and I up my amplifier to 20 uh, watts, that's going to be 73 dB. Well, that's not loud enough. I need another 3 dB to actually notice the difference and make the change and make me happy. So now I would have to take that 20 watt amplifier and double it. I couldn't just say, 10 to 20 gives me 3 dB. If I add another 10, that's 3 dB. Nope, it's not. 10 to 20, that change, that doubling would be 3 dB. Then I would start at 20. 20 to 40, 40. would be another doubling. That would be 3 dB because it's a comparison. So 10 to 20 is a doubling. 40 is a doubling. Every time I double power, it's a 3 dB change. This affects us when we have things like so I have a concert system that's supposed to be, say, 100 dB at mix position, and I have 10 loudspeakers on each side. My mix position, I'm getting a 94 dB SPL with it at uh, RMS, at average, where it's supposed to be. 10 loudspeakers, 94 dB. Okay, I double that to make 20 loudspeakers each side. I just got to 97 dB. Now I put... 40 loudspeakers each side, then I get to 100 dB. So you can see when I start getting bigger and bigger, like I really get big. So uh, that's kind of how the, the decibel works when we're talking about physics of sound. Got you. That makes more sense to me. Thank you. Good. So Good. next, when it comes to like the inverse square law, can we talk about that really quick? Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you the general principle, and then I'm going to talk about something that's going to blow your mind, and everything's going to snap all at once. Okay. When I, when I double the distance from a sound source, right, my sound is, say, at two feet, and I go out to four feet, I lose six dB. Or if I'm at four feet and I go to two feet, I gain six dB. Okay. Now, this is weird because if I double or half power, it's only 3 dB, right? Mm -hmm. So inverse square with sound, if you can imagine sound as light, and okay. it works the same with light. If I double or half power with light, it's a 3 dB change. Now, think about it. I have this box, right? 
Yeah. This is the area my sound is energy is being put out. If I doubled this, I would put another box next to it, correct? So now that's two. Yeah. So 3 dB. But if I move from here and I double the coverage from that to that, that's not doubling the coverage. I have one here, 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 and here. So now I have four boxes. So that, these two boxes, this box by itself is the sound. I add another box, it's 3 dB. But now I'm doubling this for another box to give me my square. So if you can imagine with light, the amount of light that's covering this area, if I move my flashlight back, so now it got bigger, now I have four boxes. The same amount of light is covering four boxes. So the intensity, the power of the light goes down 6 dB. Gotcha. Okay. So, so that works with sound, with light, that inverse square law. If I double the distance or half the distance. Now this is specifically with distance and power, the power intensity of a light or the power intensity of a loudspeaker. So this works if I had just have a normal loudspeaker. Hey, check this out. I'm totally going to blow your mind. There's loudspeakers that don't lose 6 dB when you double. If I double the distance from a line array, because the pattern now is not it, like a, a sound goes omnidirectional. If I had a theoretical loudspeaker in my thumb, right, it could generate every frequency, but there's no box, there's no transducer around it blocking the sound waves. The sound would go everywhere in a 360 degree, like a sphere, like light with a candle. If I have a candle, that light goes everywhere. So the only thing that really keeps my my music on a regular box loudspeaker going forward is the medium of the things. Those sound waves, those higher frequencies that are like, you know, half an inch, those are being blocked by the back box, by the cone, by the spider of the loudspeaker. That's why people say bass is omnidirectional. No, all sounds omnidirectional. The bass frequencies that are 10 feet long aren't being blocked by that two foot a piece of wood in that loudspeaker. To block a sound, I need something that's at least the size of that wave. So if I have a loudspeaker that through design and construction is made to not throw out like, a, like an orb, but throws out its pattern like a soup can, now I've focused all that energy like a line array. Well, instead of losing the energy that would be going this way, we focus that energy on a line array loudspeaker and just like light, instead of having a candle, it's a laser. And that light or that sound maintains that focus of energy over a distance. So now I only lose three dB every time I double the distance with a line array or fluorescent lights, fluorescent lights, the pattern that a fluorescent, you know, a bigger, like a two foot, tile light or four foot tile light, fluorescent lights, those throw their light pattern just like a line array. And I've done this in class many times. We go to like an incandescent bulb and I'll hold up my light meter and then I'll double it and we'll do the calculation. And sure enough, we lost, you know, when you, when you double that distance, think of those squares. Now I'm doing light over double the distance. So I have four squares. So I each square now only has 25% of the original energy. So if I'm at a thousand lumens or a thousand lux, excuse me, not lumens, yeah. a yeah, thousand yeah. lux, and I double the distance, my measurement's going to be around 250 lux at that double distance. Gotcha. 
So I can go up to a fluorescent light. I'm at a thousand uh, lux. I double the distance. I only drop to 500 lux. And I do this all the time in class. It's really freaky. People are like, wow, the fluorescent light doesn't lose as much energy. And we talk about the focus of that energy. And energy, a sine wave is a sine wave. These fluorescent lights coming off of the sine wave, it's just a higher sine wave, higher frequency, right? Light's just yes. a, a sine wave in a higher frequency. Sine waves behave the same. If I can focus them and get all that energy captured, I can use less energy to get the same amount of coverage. Uh, line arrays. They're meant, you know, big concert speakers. They're meant to throw way back to the back of the crowd. So I want to get back there and I want to have my 100 dB SPL at mix position instead of adding uh, 40 speakers or uh, instead of going up to 40 speakers per side to make that 6 dB, now I'd only have to use 20 speakers per side. Gotcha. So that's how we start using physics to our advantage. Okay. Uh, you know, the right kind of uh, equipment to spec when we know, hey, I know we're going to be thrown a long way with our lights. So why don't we use fluorescence here instead of incandescence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Moving right into acoustics now. <laughs> so that's, it's a whole branch of science, which like the word science by itself, I'm like, oh, oh no. So it's basically the, the science that's behind the characteristics of sound waves. Right. Okay. Great. I'm, I've got it so far. So reflected sound energy, like when you are talking into a room, no matter what room you're in, like sound at some portion, unless you're in like a very special room is going to reflect. Yes. And there are two types. Uh, so there's, uh, yeah, two, the two main types of reflections are uh, specular and diffused. Okay. So let's, about this let's think about this again like okay. a light okay if i have a matte screen and i shine a flashlight on it that flashlight is going to hit the matte screen and it's going to diffuse that energy we're still going to have a, a, a basis of our energy but it's going to diffuse that energy i'm i'm not going to see a um a, a laser-like reflection it's going to you know light up the room so to speak uh, especially if I have a very even light on it and an even flashlight. Now, if I had that same flashlight and I sh and I had a mirror, that light is going to hit that surface, that specular surface, and angle off at a at the same angle that it hit, the angle of incident. So, if I'm standing next to the the matte screen and I see it, I can go around and I can see that light all over the place because it's diffusing. But if I'm on that mirror and somebody shines a flashlight, there's only going to be one little spot that I would be able to see that light because it's it's hitting and directing right off in its same focus beam. It's not being diffused all over the place. Same thing with sound. The two big reflections are specular reflections, that, that laser-like thing, mm -hmm. and uh, diffused reflections. If it hits it, it skews that light or sound in every direction. Got you. Okay. Moving right along into sound capture. So I obviously know what a microphone, I know what a microphone is. So I'm like, I'm kind of coming along. Um, but the way that they work is different. So that's where we bring in dynamic and condenser and electrode and what are the, what's the, MEMS or M-E-M-S? I've never even heard of that. 
Um, but, but like most in my line of work, I, I knew it was a dynamic because those were cheap. Um, we could carry them around with us and nothing would really happen to them. And they were the easiest to just like bring around with you in a handheld. So, yeah. So is it the difference between like all of these, how they are built on the inside? Uh, how they're built on the inside and actually what they do. So a dynamic mic. It's very, very simple principle. Uh, you have a piece of wire and you wrap it around a magnet. Just coil copper cable around a magnet and it comes out the other end. Now, if you've ever done this, I have this uh, uh, thing I play with. I have LED lights that, um, I have a little LED and I have a piece of conduit. It's just a uh, plastic conduit. And the LED has a piece of copper wire on it and it's wrapped around the outside of the plastic conduit and then connected to the other side of the LED. And I have a magnet that I push down that's the same size as the conduit. And when that magnet passes the, the coil of wire, the LED light lights up, it creates a charge. Magnet moving with copper wire creates a charge. So now we can create a charge. Remember I said the, the uh, my mouth hole is going to vibrate the microphone and it's gonna create an electrical impulse. So microphones are actually, they actually create electricity by doing that. But to do that, I have a diaphragm, very, very thin, thin piece of metal. And when I say thin, like most diaphragms uh, are either plastic or metal, really good ones are metal, but they're like two or three microns, maybe even six microns thick. And when I say uh, six microns thick, your fingernail grows 10 microns an hour. Okay, so very small. This thing is six microns thick. Okay. Very thin, right? So uh, the sound hits this diaphragm and it mm -hmm. vibrates. And the diaphragm is connected to the, uh, the magnet and the coil wire. And so it, it vibrates this magnet creating a very specific electrical charge that is um, consistent. So I put the energy into the air, the air vibrates the molecules, the molecules vibrate the diaphragm, the diaphragm vibrates the magnet, the, the the magnet gives a charge of that vibration to the microphone and that's what creates our signal in a nutshell. Okay. So it transduces that energy. That's a, a, a dynamic microphone. The condenser uh, has like uh, like capacitors, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of electronics in there. The big things about condensers is there's two plates, right? Instead of a, a, a coil of wire, coil. And we run a charge through this. And when the diaphragm vibrates, it changes the amount of charge between these two plates. And that's what we're recognizing as the signal. We have to run some type of power to get that charge, phantom power, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the nice thing about this is I can use smaller microphones. I don't need a big diaphragm, you know, to generate that charge. I'm just looking at the difference in this charge. So I can use a lot smaller diaphragms. They're more sensitive. So there's, that's just two of the mics. There's all kinds of different microphone construction. There's laser mics that pick up the change in, in the molecules through a laser. There's ribbon microphones that, you know, it's literally a, a ribbon uh, of metal stretched across. Uh, there's a, a bunch of different, and there's a bunch of different pickup patterns. Microphones are designed through that physics to pick up like a cardioid pattern, right? If I have my microphone here, I just want it to pick up on my face. I don't want it to pick up what's back here. Or I might have a microphone that's a, a hypercard where it's very, very tight pickup area. So if I move the microphone off axis, right. it wouldn't pick up as well. But the advantage to this is 
on a cardioid mic, that uh, off axis rejects really well. So if I'm a lead singer in a, in a band and I have a monitor in front of me, I can yeah. put that mic front and it rejects that audio. If if I have a lead singer come up and say, hey, I want two monitors, I change the microphone out. I give them a super card or a hyper card. That way it rejects off the side. It still has a little bit of pickup. If you could think of this pickup area as a balloon. Mm -hmm. So if I have all balloon here, I have none here. If I squeeze this balloon, a little bit's going to come back here, but I'm going to have rejection on the sides because I squeezed it this way. If I squeeze it even more, very tight, I might have a lot more pickup from the, the off axis, but it rejects that much more on the sides. Moving along to audio signal levels. That was like the next thing that kind of stumped me a little bit. So in terms of mic level like i understand what that is because like if you plug your microphone into a recorder and you like listen to it it's gonna make a noise even if you're in like the quietest room ever and that's just what mic level is because mics just automatically come with like a level of noise right so yes and no okay so when we start that's fine. we have to look at the specifications of a microphone and uh, how sensitive that microphone is. So a lot of microphones have a sensitivity on their spec sheet compared to one Pascal. That's pretty general. They say, if I put one Pascal of energy, remember that, that those microphones are generating an electrical signal. So if I give this so much acoustic energy of one Pascal, it's going to generate an electrical signal of this much dBV. And Remember, dBV is a comparison. I qualified that dB with a little v. So I'm comparing what this microphone is giving me. If I put this much acoustic energy into it, how much power is that microphone going to give me as compared to one volt? Zero dBV is one volt. So uh, if I'm uh, putting, say, uh, SM57, I, it's not jock and manufacturer, I just know off the top of my head, my SM57 is negative 55.4 dBV at one Pascal. So now that I know this ratio, if I have less than one Pascal, less than 94 dB, a human talker is 66 dB at one, 66 to 70 dB at one meter. So if I have this microphone one meter away from my mouth, now I'm not giving it 94 dB SPL. So it's not going to give me 54.5 dBV voltage. It's going to give me a lot less. And I can do some math and a comparison. I actually have a bunch of videos on the on uh, uh, our video series for Avixa telling all about this. So we go through microphone comparisons. Um, so if I put in more, now think about this. Lead singer, and I do this all the time with my lead singers. I just put an SPL meter by them and say, can you sing into this microphone for me and hold it like you would. And they sing into it and their voices are powerful. So at this distance, you know, 66 dB a normal talker at one meter, but a someone singing at this distance is going to be a lot uh, more pressure because the microphone's closer, because their volume's raised. So a lot of lead singers will generate between 105 and 110 dB SPL at the microphone. So I've compared it to 94 dB. I'm going to get negative 54.5 dBV. And I can think about that in my mathematical comparison, figure out how much gain I need, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now I can move that 94 dB SPL because we're dealing in dBs. Again, it's a comparison. 
to 110 dB SPL, figure out how much dBV it's going to output, uh, transfer that to dBU, what I'm going to have in my console, and dBU and dBV, there's a 2.2 difference because dBV is a one volt re reference, dBU is 0.775 volts, there's a 2.2 dB difference there. Then I can figure out, well, my lead singer is 110 dB SPL. With this microphone that's negative uh, 54.5 uh, dBV at 94, that means I'm only going to need about 28 to 30 dB of gain. So before I even get to the, the, the console, before I even plug anything in, I know what my microphone is. I know what my lead, I have a guess about what my lead singer is going to do. I can set up all the gain knobs. If it's a DSP, I can do all my programming before I even get there. Um, so all of that stuff, all of these things work together as a system. Right. Uh, knowing the microphone specs, getting that microphone level. Now, when they talk about microphone level, if I had a dynamic mic and I talked into it and put a multimeter on it or gave it some consistent sound energy and put a multimeter on it, that microphone's only gonna generate like 0 0.002 volts or 0 0.003 volts. So microphone level is very, very low electrically. When I put it into a mixing console at my preamp, that's where I want to bring it up. Now, preamps will do that cleanly. They will isolate it. They'll give me a nice uh, signal before my noise floor. My noise floor, what I'm going to hear from that console. And like you said, you turn it on, nothing's going through it. And you can hear, right? Yeah. So I want that noise floor really low. And I want that signal to be 60 or 70 dB above that noise floor to make it nice and clean. So if I have a, a signal coming in that's 0 0.002 volts and I don't bump that signal up on my gain stage, if I tried to amplify that signal, you know, my noise floor is at like 0 0.001 volt and this microphone is at 0 0.003 volts, right? If I don't amplify that mic signal before it gets to the noise floor, before it hits the electronics, when I go to amplify it, I'm amplifying my signal and my noise. That's what's coming out of the loudspeakers. So at the gain stage, I'm gonna amplify that signal over the noise floor. Okay. Now, when it goes through to be processed, you have this 60 dB headroom and I can hear uh, signal great and I don't hear the noise. Um, so microphone put out a, a small charge, but we need in our preamp section, we really need to boost that up over the noise floor of everything else that's going on. Got you. Okay, so moving on to audio mixers. So if you have a lot of mics plugged in and you're taking audio from a bunch of different sources, you put it into the mixer so that you can do what you need to do before moving on to the next stage, correct? And that's that makes more sense than just like plugging it, everything directly into like a computer. Right. Okay. So with that mixer, I have all these different points of energy coming in. Let's just think about it from an electrical standpoint. Okay. If I have a microphone in and I boost that microphone in that mixer and I get a good level, zero dBU is what I like to shoot for nominal 0.75 volts. Well, if I add another microphone and these microphones are both going to be active at the same time, I just doubled the power. So now, instead of this microphone being zero dBU and this microphone zero, being zero dBU, when they're together, I'm going to have, it's going to be more acoustical energy coming in, building up. I'm going to have a plus three dBU signal. Uh, 
if I add two more microphones, that's another 3 dB. If I add four more microphones, that's another that's 3 dB. Crazy. Now my signal get really high, right? Mm -hmm. So at my preamp, I want to make sure if I have one microphone that's going to be used, I adjust that preamp, bring my level meter up to zero, and the you know it's not going to be a sine wave. Your voice is complex waveform, but it yeah. should bounce around. Zero. If I have two microphones, I would set the first microphone, all my faders at zero, and I would bring my preamp so when the person talks on microphone one, that center of the bounce isn't at zero, but it's at negative three. So I know if there's two singers singing at the same time, when they both sing, that negative three is going to bring me up to zero. I want to come out of my console at zero dBU. I'm a unity gang guy. Zero yeah. dBU, 775 volts. And I want to carry that through my entire chain. And uh, I do this for math reasons so I can predict, you know, mathematically what's going to happen to my system. So the more things I add, the more voltage is going to be on my console, the more power is going in. Well, things like uh, if you have a digital recorder, a digital media player, that's not going to be a microphone level. They're putting out, you know, two or three volts coming out of its output. And when I plug that in, this is one of the cool things. If you ever see a console that says, uh, here's your electronic inputs, they usually have different types of inputs, or even if they're XLRs, you can uh, set it for line level input. There's a, a button that might say plus, uh, plus four or negative 10. RC, consumer gear, stuff with like RCA, their um, output is usually around negative 10 dBV, 0.77 dBU. So it's, it's, it's lower. So yeah. if I have that button that says um, negative 10, I push it and it actually brings the signal up so I don't have to boost it too much in my preamp. Same thing with professional gear coming in at like 1.2 volts or even 2 volts. There's a plus four button. If I know that professional gear is coming in hot, I hit that plus four button. It's not adding 4 dB to my signal. It's telling the console, this is a plus four device. It's coming in hot. So it actually lowers the sound, the lo lowers the level, excuse me. And so the something that would be coming in hot, so I don't have to turn it down a bunch, it will pad it for me. And then I have that normal uh, operational sweep because my sweep's going to go like, down at the bottom, it's going to be like negative 60. It's going to go up to zero about here. And then plus 10, plus 20, plus 30. Now, remember what we said about dBs. Down here, those adjustments are very minute. Up yes. here, those adjustments are huge. Crazy, exponential, yeah. So if I'm working with something that's a, a, a huge signal, and I want to use the sweet spot of that gain knob. I mean, I would barely be touching it, you know, down here at negative 60, negative 50, negative 40. That's the same ratio as up here is like negative 10, negative 20. There's a much bigger area here than here. So if I just moved it a little bit, I might get six or seven dB. Here, I'd have to move it more substantially to get six or seven dB. And that's because the manufacturers know it's exponential up there. We need more room to work. Okay. Got you. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but my last question I really wanted to ask you was, it's kind of general. So if you had just like one piece of advice for me as I'm like continuing to study and to really try hard to understand all this stuff, um, what would it be? Awesome question. It's a question I'm often asked and I have the same answer. What you're doing right now, uh, reaching out to your community, 
uh, talking to a bunch of people who do this all the time. It's, this is the best way to study, to gain knowledge. I still do this. I was on um, chatting with Bill Natras, Jeremy Elsesser, Jim Maltese today, Jeremy Caldera, people who are very prominent in the industries are very good friends of mine, but we chat about AV stuff all the time. This is our life. And, and we get better that way. We build each other up talking about concepts of business, talking about physics of sound and light, and new product, reaching out to your community. And this, this whole idea, like I'm studying, I'm going to make a podcast and get a bunch of people who know more than me to talk about it so I can help everybody else. Yeah. Like this is phenomenal uh, to be able to not just get that information, but to give that information. Um, I have a saying uh, uh, that I, I say quite a bunch it's each one teach one and that's the way we get better in the industry and yeah. it doesn't matter if you're an expert you can always get better i learn stuff every day um reaching out to people and talking about stuff and not being afraid to ask i, I tell people all the time and if you got a question hit me up on twitter or facebook yeah. it doesn't matter find me right. or find somebody else and uh and ask the questions and you know you you came with a good bit of questions organized ready to go like <laughs> i if I had a day off, I'd literally talk to you for hours about oh, any. I would talk. Yeah. Like I was like, oh gosh, we've already been talking over an hour and I could literally ask Chuck all of my audio questions like for hours. So I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, I guess like have not having the fear of being like, oh, this is probably going to be a stupid question and I'm going to ask it anyway, because there's no way that I'm the only one who has this question. So oh. They have been asked and asked and asked. And I really, I mean, when it comes to AV stuff, if you don't know, it's not a stupid question. I don't know. Uh, the difference between magic and science is understanding where the magic comes from. So like when I tell people audio is not a black art, it's not black magic. It's because I learned the science. At one point in time, I thought it was black magic. I'm like, man, that guy's so good. How can I be that good? And I asked him, hey, you, how come you're so good? And somebody would show me something. And it's like a wizard showing you a spell, right? And all of a sudden I created a dragon. Well, that's the science to the wizard. To anyone else who looks at it, it's, wow, mind-blowing magic. But no, you do this math, you do these calculations, you take air temperature, look at all the things that affect uh, vibrations in the air. Temperature is a big one. People don't think about that a lot. Right. Uh, learn propagates how it moves around learn everything about it and then when you think oh i've learned everything about this find somebody else who knows a little bit more or different and then you learn from that and you keep learning all these magic spells to the point where you're like you know you get out to the battlefield where your wizards and you just throw down some good sound and you're like boom done like, yeah. wow you're no i'm a scientist i can show you for sure. Well, Chuck, thank you so, so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm probably going to email maybe more questions as I, as I come across them. Um, but I really appreciate it and appreciate you supporting this process that I'm going through. Um, so for everyone listening, you can watch on ravepubs.com. You can also listen there. And I am also on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So you can listen at all the places. And um, this has been Study with Steph. Thanks again, Chuck. Yeah, no problem. I will uh, send you some links too. I have a bunch of videos out. Uh, Avixa has a learning channel on YouTube and we have a new TikTok right. channel. So, Avixa uh, has a TikTok now? Oh yeah, I'm doing wow. like learn this in 30 seconds, right? And those videos are assembled off of our, our learning and training videos. We just take snippets and put them together and give you a kind of a taste. Yeah. But those 
lot of those training videos are on our training channel. Um, some of the videos uh, are um, behind our paywall. So if right. you're a member, you can go there and you have access to all of them. If you're not an elite member, you pay a little bit, you can watch a video, get an RU. But uh, I'll send you links to those. If you have any questions that pertain to a video, first thing I'll do is say, hey, watch this video. Go back and watch it a few times, develop specific questions, and then we can talk about it. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. My pleasure. Study with